With no further ado, turn to John chapter 20. And you may say, why are we turning to John chapter 20? Well, we preached through John 1 through 19 last week. And if you missed it, I'm sorry. So we kind of, it was, it was a good sermon though, I hear. No, John 20 is where John tells us why he's written this gospel. You know, we're used to putting our thesis or our topic sentence um, at the first paragraph, right? As any good English composition student would do. But John kind of, he kind of waits to the end for the punchline. And he wants to deliver it to us. And we're going to unpack just two verses, John 20, 30 through 31, as an introduction to, to, our, to our lesson, to our to this series that we'll be in, Lord willing, for probably a couple of years. So I'm going to ask you to do something different. I want you to stand as we read this. Pastor Josh, when he preaches, has, has, has you stand, and I don't want to be left out. Actually, I think this will be a really cool thing for us to get into the habit of doing. What it says is, God, we are standing under your word. God, whatever I have to say or whatever you have to say is immaterial to what you have to say in the Bible. So this is on this authority that we, that we come together today. So John 20, verses 30 through 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Lord, we need your help. There's a great promise in here that you offer us life through Jesus Christ. And we want that life, Lord. We want it because we believe you want it for us. We want it for ourselves, our neighbors, our friends, our children, our spouses. And so, Lord, we're asking you to do what only you can do. Take these words and transform hearts and lives to your glory. We commit them to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Take a seat. There's, there's three questions that emerge out of these two verses that I think as we unpack them and kind of dig into them together, it'll help us better, better grab hold of what this book is about, what this series is going to look like. And, and, and just to let you know, this is a take notes kind of day, okay? So if you've never taken notes and you want to start, today's the day, because we're going to go through some, some stuff. We'll try to keep it engaging. It will, I'm sure, be exhilarating and enthralling as we do. But nonetheless, three questions, and here they are. Who, who in fact, is writing this book? And we say John, but is that, why do we believe that? Number two, what's prompted John to write? What are the circumstances, the context here? Why does he include what he includes and doesn't include what he doesn't include? And then thirdly, and I think most importantly, what is John's goal for us? Upon completion of this study and through this study, what does God, through John, want to do in our hearts? What does he want to do in our lives? What does he want to do in our church? What does he want us, what do you want, what does he want us to do in our, in our city, in our context? What are we running after here? So th- those are our three questions. Let's go with the first one. Who is writing? Now, Verse 30, look there, makes explicit that a book is in fact being compiled and that it was being compiled apparently by someone who was a disciple, who was present with Jesus, someone who had witnessed the ministry of Jesus 
up close and personal. Now, there's mounds, literally mounds, of extra-biblical evidence that this person was, in fact, John. He was one of the original 12. He's, he's the brother of James. He's one of the sons of thunder. Wouldn't you love for your, for your moniker, your family name, to be the, the son of thunder? You know that John just busted some heads in that Jerusalem bar before Jesus found him. Church tradition tells us this. Manuscripts do the universal testimony of the early church. However, and that, that's for a whole different study, I think the, the internal evidence and the book itself, the clues that we have that this is John, I think are much more fascinating and compelling. First of all, John's name, John the Apostle, John the Disciple, his name is not found anywhere in this book. Other than one other disciple, in fact, his brother, Andrew, John is the only disciple not named by his first name, which is kind of mystifying when you think about how prominent John was in the early church. Remember when we preached through Acts, John was like a central figure. He, along with Peter, Wherever Peter went, John went, and it was usually a jail, okay? But they were, they were very, very prominent together, but he's not mentioned in this gospel. In fact, when it comes to talking about John the Baptist, his namesake, John the Baptist is not referred to as John the Baptist. He's simply referred to as John. And so there's this, there's this sense that in the other gospels where you always have John the Baptist and then John the disciple, and they were called that in order to distinguish themselves from each other, we don't find that in this gospel. Now, why, why is that important? Now, do you know anybody who refers to themselves in the third person? Those highly annoying, irritating people, okay? George Foreman, George Costanza, Donald Trump, Elmo. Elmo refers himself in the third person, by the way. Thankfully, John spares us from this. And instead, he refers to himself, and he does this five different times, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, that may sound kind of pretentious to you. I, I, I'm, I'm the favored one. Jesus loves you, but Jesus really loves me. Um, now, I once saw a t-shirt that says, Jesus loves you, but then again, he loves everybody. Okay, And I gave that t-shirt as a white elephant a gift, much to my wife's chagrin. Okay? But this is not an expression of, of pride. Okay? I think it's a real expression of humility. See, I think this is John's way of saying, I'm just a fisherman. I'm just a sinner. I was just a guy hanging out with my brother Andrew, beating people up or doing whatever it is that earned me this nickname. And, and I, I'm really not important other than the fact that I was just there. But see, I'm the disciple that Jesus loved. You see, he sought me out. He poured his grace out on me. I was lost and wandering around, but can you believe it that Jesus loved me? Jesus chose me to follow him. I think that's what John is getting at. And I think there was an unusually close relationship that John had with Jesus. We, we find out from the upper room, which we'll get to in four or five years, whenever we, we, we get to that point, that, that John laid his head upon Jesus's shoulder we know that it was John and John only who made it to the cross with Jesus at the end of Jesus' life. He was there with Jesus' mother and their, her entourage and family. And Jesus is hanging there on the cross. And he looks at John and he looks at, and he looks at Mary, his mother. And he says, John, behold your mother. M mother, woman, behold your son. 
It says, and from that day forward, she, Mary, went and lived with John probably for the rest of her life. Can you imagine what that was like? Can you imagine what sort of, what sort of Q&A, what sort of family trivia they would, they would perform there in that household to, to, together? So he had an unusually close relationship with Jesus. We also think that, that whoever wrote this was probably a young man. Now, we know church history tells us that John was the last apostle to die sometime in the late 90s in Ephesus or thereabouts or on Patmos. We don't know for sure. There's little subtle clues in here. So it's funny, when we get to the resurrection, it says, it's interesting. It says that the disciple whom Jesus loved and Peter ran to the tomb. But then what does it add? But the disciple whom Jesus loved outran him. So like John, the young man, outran fat Peter. And it was just his way of saying, nah, nah, Peter. Okay, I got there first. And the, there's just all sorts of amazing things that just, that just emanate authenticity and eyewitness testimony. See, John, John is clearly a native Jew. He's from Jerusalem. And when I say he knows literally every watering hole, I, I mean that. He talks about the this gate and this pool. And he talks about 153 fish in this story. He knows everybody by first name. He knows the high priest's servant. He's a friend of the high priest's household. And this is all really, 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 really important. Because guys, if we, if we cannot tie the gospel to history, you and I have nothing this morning. Okay? We can, you know, what distinguishes Christianity is that, you know, you, you hear this moniker, I'm spiritual, not religious. I, you know, spirituality is something I construct for myself. It's something I make, you know, I, I, it's whatever is meaningful to me. And the gospel say, no, 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 no. This is truth. This is history. This is real. And because it's real, Jesus came in the flesh and blood, which is one of the central things John wants to communicate. Then, then because of that, we have genuine hope, real hope. We have life in his name. And this idea of personal testimony is just so important. You know, parents, if you come in and you've made the fatal mistake of leaving your kids alone for whatever reason you've done, right? And so when you came in and a ruckus has happened while you were away, okay, and you have to begin to reconstruct what's happened, okay? Now, if you're a parenting novice, okay, okay, you'll sit your kids down on the couch and ask them what happened. No, 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 don't do that. No, no, no. That's wrong, okay? you go all FBI up in there and you separate those witnesses, don't you? You put one in one room and one in the other and you interrogate them. And I use that word intentionally, interrogate. And then you compare stories. And who is being truthful is usually pretty clear, isn't it? Because the one who's, who's not truthful, they are just spinning some sort of crazy yarn, right? It's just like fanciful and then, then it was this and oh my goodness. And it's, there's no specificity. It's kind of all over the place. But the kid who's innocent, oh boy, he knows the crime down to the detail, doesn't he? Okay, let me tell you what happened when my sister stole your lipstick and colored her bicycle with it, Mom. I can tell you exactly how that happened. See, that's, that's John. See, John, uh, his, his attention to detail as an eyewitness is, is so compelling. And we've got to think about it. Remember, this is 60 years later that he's writing this. And we have to say, how, how did John have such great retention? You know, one of the things we have to remember is that in that day, because most people could not read or write, the way that a, a master would train his disciples was by memory. And so uh, the, the, the disciple would teach, 
and then his, then his, I'm sorry, the master would teach, and the disciples would learn rotely. They would memorize kind of in catechismal language. And it's interesting that when you look at John, it is writ- it's the most profound book, I think, one of the most profound books in all the New Testament, but yet it is written so simply. I am the bread of life. I am the resurrection. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the vine. And it would have been so common and easy for Jesus' disciples to, re- to remember those things, to rehearse those things, to pass that oral tradition down. In fact, and this is just a theory, don't mean to get off too much of a rabbit trail, but some believe that, in fact, John is a series of sermons that John himself preached based upon the teachings of Jesus, edited and compiled that he did this to give us this book. And that's just an interesting theory. But the most important thing that you can know about John is what he claims for this book. John 14, 25 through 26. This is so relevant, and it gives context for how you and I are to view the Word of God, why we accept this gospel as authoritative. He says, this is is Jesus speaking in the upper room. He says, these things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. Now listen to this. So you've been memorizing these things, John. You've been putting them to, to memory, rehearsing them, but... The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Guys, you may dismiss this book and this passage and and this gospel as, as mythical fairy tale hogwash, but you need to know what this gospel claims for itself. It's not mere historical data. It is, it is not merely a, a, a compilation of cool things Jesus did and said in his ministry. This book claims authoritative inspiration from the Holy Spirit himself, God's word to us. There is no middle ground. There is no safe distance from this gospel. We either embrace it and take it upon ourselves, or we say, no, God, that's, your word is not for me. But understand what John himself says about what he's writing. John, what an amazing guy. We're going to learn so much about him in this book. But most importantly, he's not the hero. Jesus is the hero. He's just a witness. He's just testimony. All right, that's John. Number two, what prompted John to write? You know, we have to remember, it's, it's easy to think like this Bible of 66 books that you and I have, of, of, of Old and New Testament, it was sort of plopped down from heaven. That's, that's not how that worked. We, as we taught our kids catechism when they were young, who wrote the Bible? Okay, that's a tr- always a trick question, right? <laughs> okay, holy men taught by the Holy Spirit would be, I think, the way we would want to think about that. And these, and these men who wrote, wrote for a reason. They wrote through a context. What prompted John to write? Remember, this is the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, were probably written in the 60s. This is now 30 years later. What would prompt, prompt John to, to write what he does? Now, he gives us an, a couple of clues. Look back at verse 30. It says, Jesus did many other signs. Now, this is crazy, which are not written. Because John gives us some of the most amazing miracles in all of Scripture. Water into wine. Lazarus raised from the dead. 
And John's like, that's just kind of a representative, okay? There's many, many other things I could have written. Hey, listen to what he says in verse 25 in chapter 21. Now, there there were also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. John could have written about a lot of things, but he didn't. He wrote about certain things. And it's interesting that 90% of what is in the Gospel of John is not found in any of the other Gospels. So, So what prompted John to write and include what he included? Just a bit of history just for a minute or two, so stick with me. Remember, up to 70 A.D., Jesus ascended into heaven in 30 A.D. For the next 30 or 40 years, Jews who became Christians did not see this as a new religion because, in fact, it wasn't. This was a fulfillment of everything that was taught and preached in the Old Testament. When they worshipped Christ, they believed they were worshipping Christ, the Messiah, the Son of Yahweh. And so it's interesting that Jews who became Christians, where did they go to worship? In the temple, in the synagogue. But what began to happen is that in 70 AD, Jerusalem was destroyed, the temple was destroyed, and Jews dispersed or scattered all across the ancient world. They would settle in this city and that city. We think this is probably how John came to to be at the church in Ephesus. And about this time, with this massive influx of Jewish Christians, the Jewish authority said, no way. Okay? You, you are, you, this is not a true religion. You are not a part of the Jewish faith, and we are banishing you from the synagogue. And we believe John was in part writing to communicate to this Jewish audience that, in fact, Jesus is not just a Christ or a Messiah. He is the Christ. He is the Messiah. And that's why we're going to find all these discourses, this conflict between Jesus and the Jewish leaders. We're going, to t- we're going to talk about how the disciples were being put out of the synagogue. John has a very specific purpose here. He wants them to know and understand, his readers, that Jesus is not a great teacher. Jesus is not a great moralist. Jesus is not simply um, even a profound prophet. In fact, Jesus is the Christ, and because of that, you have to, you are, you are coming to a decision, a personal decision, believe or not. So when we come to these other Gospels, and, and let's be honest, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptic Gospels, they're very similar, written around the same time. They rely on a lot of the same sources. You'll find the birth narratives in there, for example, Their their style, their vernacular, their phraseology is very similar. But when you pick up the Gospel of John, it's like, whoa, this is something totally different. How are we to think about that? Because that can be a crisis of faith for some people. It's like, is this this a different Jesus? What's happening here? I think one way to think about it is this. Now, the synoptics, written as they were in 60 A.D. or so, primarily focus on what Jesus did, his miracles, his, his, his passion, his travels, his birth narrative, his background. John, on the other hand, is much more concerned about what Jesus said. Okay? The, the synoptics, what Jesus did. John's what, what Jesus said. It doesn't mean that Jesus doesn't do amazing things in the Gospel of John. 
It just means that at that point in time in the history of the church, John undoubtedly and the rest of the church were very familiar with Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They knew the narratives. They knew the teachings. But here John is at the end of his life. Think about it this way. He's at the end of his life, and he wants to leave a lasting legacy, a lasting theology of who Jesus is to the church. And this is why John's gospel was the go-to gospel in adjudicating all sorts of theological controversies and about the nature of Christ and who he is and different councils and those sorts of things. And so, so what we have to understand is that these are not competing pictures of Jesus, they're complementary pictures of Jesus. Let me give you an example by drawing from the repertoire of the the Gilbert family escapades. Okay, so, so we, were, we were heading back from Orlando back in January, and um, our car was, was just chock full. I mean, I mean you, know, you know when your car, dads, when you're like, no, 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 do not open the back hatch, okay, or everything's going to fall out. We were in that mode. So much stuff that we had two car top carriers to go along with it, stuffed with food and luggage, and we had made the mistake of going to the outlet mall. I had a bunch of stuff sticking there. And guys, and y'all know what it's like driving on I-10, right, around a holiday. Like last spring, like spring break, it's like Daytona 500 right there, right? And so we, and so I, I'm, you know, I like to drive fast, okay? And so, so we're, we're going about 75 miles an hour. You know, there's about an inch, okay, between myself and the bumper and the guy in front of me. And that's like a half an inch too far. So I'm like always like tr- trying, to, trying to, to muzzle. Susan loves the way I drive. Anyway, <laughs> we're going about 75 miles an hour. Then all of a sudden I hear a shriek from the car, a shriek. Now, before I tell you what happened, okay, if I were to set our four children and Susan down in the front row and you were to ask them, what happened, okay, you would get a wide variety of varying perspectives, okay? They all had their unique vantage point, but they all would be talking about the same event. So one child might say, wow, the thing that impressed me the most was the, Dad, was the way that car top carrier rocketed off the top of that van. <laughs> like, that was amazing. Like, it's up in the air, and we're all like, whoa. But another kid might have said, but but even better was when that big car came and hit that luggage thing and all the stuff went out all over the road, okay? <laughs> Tie detergent and Crocs and anyway, it was, just, it was a mess. The other child may say, but that was good. But what I really enjoyed was, was watching dad park the car and sprint 300 yards back in the middle of traffic and begin picking up stuff out of the freeway. <laughs> and the other child might be like, but, but you know, I really appreciate the fact that dad risked his life, okay? And in fact, traffic was backed up for miles, okay, as, as we got all of our stuff together. Now, who's telling the truth there? Well, they all are, right? Okay, that is the truth. <laughs> and are these different versions of the same? Are, are, are these competing versions of reality? No. They're just different perspectives, See, that's the way I think we have to think about the Gospels. As different as they are in certain ways, they're so alike. Because they all testify to the same thing. Who is this Jesus? This Jesus is the Christ. John's going to show it this way. Mark's going to show it this way. 
But the answer is the same. Jesus is the Son of God, the Savior of the world. He came to die. He rose from the grave so that we could believe. That leads us to our last point. What does John want to see happen? What's his goal upon us studying this word? Let me go back and read verse 31 again. He's, again, telling us what his goal is, what his purpose, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. It didn't take our crack creative production team, which I think is me and Josh and a couple other pastors, okay, to to come up with the title for this message, for this sermon series. It was pretty obvious, Believe. Because the number of times that believe is used in this book, the word pistis, over a hundred times in some variation. It's not exaggeration to say you can throw a rock and hit believe in the Gospel of John. It might very well be that every single message that we preach here will have something to do with believe. See, John is, John is clearly trying to get something across to us. And what we're going to find again and again and again, is that John wants us to understand what do we mean by believe. See, belief in John is not merely cognitive, although it's not less than that. It's not taking a history test and saying, I believe Abraham Lincoln was the 16th president and signed the Emancipation Proclamation and freed the slaves. That's that's an important piece, the knowledge, the intellect, the content of, of truth. But as we're going to find, guys, in the Gospel of John, believe is so much more. Belief is active. It is ongoing. It is evidenced by the fact that we are entrusting ourselves to what we say we believe, that we are abiding with Christ, that we are, that we are conf- being conformed to his word. That, that, that God has all of us, our, not just our mind, but our heart and our soul. And it's interesting, this word believe, it's, in this context, it's this variant on the verb. It can, mean, it can be translated one of two, two ways. It can either mean come to believe. In other words, for the first time. If you, have, if you don't know Jesus Christ, come to believe in him. That, it can mean that. It can also mean keep on believing. Okay, it's a participle. So, 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 and, and I think both can, can be in view here in, in the gospel, and we'll see. And let me, let me give you two ways, and we'll be done, that I think this idea of believe is relevant to us. Okay, two ways. The first is that for P, if there's anyone in here, and statistics say this was true, who doesn't know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. I don't know who that would apply to. If there's anyone not trusting in Jesus Christ, God would want to make it clear, John would make it clear, he wants you to believe. He wants to entrust your life to Jesus. By the same token, when we look around at our jobs and our neighborhoods with our friends, our family, our coworkers, people on our little league team, whoever, we know that there are people there who do not believe in Jesus Christ. God wants them to believe also. 
See, that's a goal. So, so, so John 20, verses 28 through 29, the, pa- the passage right before this one. Brooks, here is, the, here is what I would want our hearts to be awakened to this season. Thomas answered him, Jesus, you're my Lord and my God. Listen to this. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. That's a promise. That's a promise. That's why I get up here and pray this morning for the churches of Tallahassee and our city and our neighbors and our friends. Guys, what would it be like as a church to be renewed in the vision for, for who this promise is intended for? That it's not just about us, but there are many in this city who don't know me to quote Jesus in the book of Acts. Got a card recently. I love getting cards like this because it reminds me of what it was like to not be a Christian. Because you've heard me say this before, the longer that we're Christians, the harder it is to remember what it was like not to be a Christian. But this is someone who was, who was saved through personal evangelism through someone in our church and goes to our church now and She's just kind of reflecting on her new life in Christ, where everything's new. Listen to what she says. She says, being a new believer, I am still in awe after spending time with Christians. When I leave for home, all is well with my soul. It's a completely and wonderfully new and different exchange. Conversations go deep quickly. Words are meaningful and cherished. Genuine and loving care is expressed. Listen to this. I am blessed immeasurably to be kept among his glorious people. Because I, I, I would love this season to come up here and read one of these every single week. Guys, there is a reason why the book of John is the go-to evangelistic book for non-Christians. Like if you become a Christian or you're trying to share your faith with someone, there's a reason why John is the go-to book. Some of the most profound truths in all of Scripture expressed in the simplest of ways. Because what would it be like if there was just a renewal of discipline that I think is fading quickly from the larger evangelical church, that when we come to church, we actually bring a friend. We actually bring a neighbor we bring a coworker. We bring someone on our child's t-ball team or our soccer team. Lord, you know, we thank the Lord for what we have here at Four Oaks, that we would say things like we're a deep community, Bible, truth, theology, and, and I do thank the Lord for that. But let's not forget, Four Oaks, that being a mature believer in Jesus Christ is having a heart for the lost like Jesus did. Because we know the disciples were a bunch of screw-ups. And let me tell you, but one of the things that they did right, even they knew this. They didn't know what to say to people. They didn't know what to do. They didn't know how to minister. What did they do? They brought that person to see Jesus. Jesus will take care of that. They just need to see Jesus. They need to experience Jesus. They need to hear from Jesus. And so there's always some ragtag group showing up where Jesus is, right? At the dinner table or in somebody's home or, or what have you. Four Oaks, 
you may not have the slightest clue what to do in, a personal, in personal evangelism. Not that that's where you need to be or stay. But let me encourage you this season to let John, the book of John, do the heavy lifting. What would happen if you begin strategically today thinking about, God, who do you want me to bring to Easter service? And not just for Easter, but subsequently. Lord, who, who, who would that be? Well, you'll be shocked at what you find when you personally invite people to join you in what you're doing and let them hear about this Jesus in the book of John. So, so I think something that's very relevant for us is for those who do not believe, God, pour out your grace, pour out your, your mercy, do your thing. But second thing, I do think this is not just for non-Christians, but this book is for you and me. As I said before, this, this term, belief, can be interpreted, keep on believing. See, and, and that might be confusing to some of us. You're like, Pastor Paul, what does that even mean? I, I believed way back there, you know, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, walked the aisle, I, I prayed the prayer. What, is, what does that mean, keep on believing? Because before I say what I'm about to say, let me say this. <laughs> one of the most precious truths and all of Scripture is found in John 10. And it has to do with eternal security. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice, and the Father gives them to me. And guess what? No one will pluck them out of my hand. No one. So if you believe in Jesus Christ, you have absolutely 100% assurance of salvation. You cannot lose your salvation. You are secure in his hands. But, but, and this is what we're going to find in John, you have... By God's grace, he keeps us believing. Belief is active. It is ongoing. It is a daily decision. And if we ever stop believing, that's a precarious position spiritually. There's always the call in this book, keep on believing. Keep on trusting. Keep on drawing close to Christ. Because as we do, that's evidence that we've already been saved. That God's Holy Spirit is alive, it's acting, it's working within us. And guys, just remember this. If you are struggling with assurance of faith, so many times there's two things going on in our life when we're struggling in our faith. Number one, we're, there, there's some sin going on. Okay, that's, 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 always, that's always a no-brainer. But two is what that sin does. That sin keeps us from engaging the community of God's people. See, I believe one of the ways that God would have your belief and my belief strengthen this season is that we would make a priority of being with the Lord's people, in the Lord's house, on the Lord's day, listening to the Lord's word. Parents, there's a lot you can give your kids, but there's nothing, absolutely nothing more important that you can give them than that. Because, why? Last, last part of this verse, we're done. So that by believing in Jesus, we may have life in his name. Because how is it that we can have meaning and hope in this life? So get up this morning and look on, on Fox News. There's the, there's the news of the little plane that comes apart in midair and it's a family of four. 
flying from Kissimmee, Disney World, up to Jackson, Tennessee. That, that news article got my attention because, of course, that's where my wife's family's from. Find out that they're, in fact, those are, those are family friends of, of Susan's family up there. And how do, you, how do you cope with that as a city goes into mourning? And how do you deal with the despair? How do you deal with the bad news, the diagnoses? How can there be hope and joy and meaning in this life? The only way that that's possible is that there is an unshakable conviction about what is to come. See, see, Jesus is going to tell us, I came that you might have life and have it abundantly. Life in this life cannot be abundant unless there is eternal life waiting for us. Eternal joy with Jesus forever. Sometimes you ask why we do communion every week. It's simply this, that we can be renewed, encouraged to keep on believing each and every day.